0: throughout every generation, there is uncertainty and curiosity about the future. And this isn't a modern phenomenon. I don't just mean in modern times. Throughout the history of mankind, people have had a curiosity about things to come, about what is coming next. In fact, all the way back to the days of Jesus, his disciples were in discussion with him. He described a time in the future of Israel, and when he did, it was in Matthew 24, and there in Matthew 24, when he described this future time, immediately the disciples begin to ask him questions. In fact, we'll put it on the screen. They asked this, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus in his answer, this is fascinating, In his answer, he actually quoted from Daniel. He referenced Daniel and said, when you see certain things, he talks about an abomination of desolation. When you see that happen, uh, standing in the holy place, that will be the sign. And there in Matthew 24, you may want to jot that down somewhere, there's a powerful parenthetical statement. Jesus said, whoever reads, let him understand. In fact, in one translation it says, reader, pay attention reader pay attention. You need to watch this. So now, as you and I come to the seventh chapter of Daniel, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there. Daniel chapter 7, as we come to this chapter, we come to a brand new section in the book. And as we look at Daniel 7, we're going to see that Daniel 1 through 6 was historical. It kind of was a chronology of Daniel's life. It told about his journey to Babylon and then uh, all of his work there in the Babylonian and then the Medo-Persian Empire but Daniel 7 through 12 is prophetic so this changes it changes from history to prophecy it changes to an apocalyptic kind of a sense where there are signs and symbols that demonstrate a spiritual truth and especially a future truth now church family look this way and listen There are many critics that have come after the book of Daniel. In fact, many would point out that the the verses that we're going to read today must have been written long years after, even centuries after Daniel's sojourn in Babylon and in Persia. And I want to put this on the screen because I want you to see it. Liberal Bible critics... Uh, And critics of Daniel presuppose that predictive prophecy is impossible, and therefore the visions and the prophecies are clever stories invented after the fact. They cannot believe in a supernatural God that could know the end from the beginning, and so consequently, many who would relegate the Bible to myth and to fairy tale and to good literature would take Daniel 7 and they would say, it must have been written years after. But we know because of critical scholarship that Daniel wrote during the days of his captivity. And in doing so, we see that many have tried their best to discredit and to deny and to do everything they could to destroy the book of Daniel. And there's good reason why this book is one of those that gives to us some solid foundation and I want you to see this let me put it on the the screen the unfolding prophecies given in Daniel have been fulfilled literally in history and that ought to give all of us great confidence in this that those prophecies that were given that have not yet been fulfilled will all come to pass can I get an amen Let me go to the next screen and say it this way. Anyone who does not believe in a supernatural Bible has mega trouble with what I just said. You see, Daniel wrote before these things happened, he predicted that they would happen under the inspiration of God. God gave him the vision and many of those unfolded in history. We're going to see that today very clearly. We're going to see in Daniel 7 amazing things that you could literally lay on a timeline of history and see that what Daniel said would come true, came true. He also gives us pictures of the future that have not yet come true, but because of what has come true, all of us ought to have a very strong sense of confidence. Everything God said will happen, will happen. Amen? Well, as we begin to think that way, we need to understand that people have all kinds of misgivings about the future. In fact, in modern history, there's almost become this great fear of things to come. Over the last five, six, seven decades, there's been a a sense of doomsday coming. In fact, if you were a child in the 50s and you went to school, there was fear of nuclear attack and kids were taught to duck and cover. There was a Cold War fear that happened. In the era post-9-11, all of a sudden terrorism and war seems to drive a sense of foreboding. And now we understand clearly all around us that there's just this sense of, of chaos that's happening. There's a lot that's out of our control. And, and and whether the pundits on TV are talking about climate change or division or they're talking about pandemics, there's this sense that there are all kinds of big forces that are at work. And somehow there's this looming foreboding doom that's out ahead of us. Listen to the words of Billy Graham. This is the generation that will pass through the fire. It is the generation under the gun, a tormented generation. This is the generation destined to live in the midst of crisis, danger, fear, and death. We are the people under the sentence of death waiting for the date to be set. We sense that something is about to happen. We know that things cannot go on as they are. Graham went on to say, history has reached an impasse. We are now on a collision course and something has to give. He said that 55 years ago. No matter how one reads history or or ponders the prophecies whether it's secular or religious prophets all of us would agree there are some strange things going on in the world today would you agree We've never seen days like these. Unrest is everywhere in the world and at any given time, it seems like wars could just kind of flare up in five or six hot spots, borders uh, in in South Asia and in East Asia and in the Middle East and here in America. It just seems like there's tension all over the place that is rising. And it begs several questions. Pastor, will the world self-destruct? Will we just... Clobber one another till we're all annihilated. What will be the final outcome of the nations in this modern period of history? Pastor, can anybody even know these things? Well, I have good news for you today. You ready? We can know. And the reason that we can know of the end is because God has told us. He may not have given us everything that we want to know, but He's given us everything that we need to know to move forward in our thinking. You see, Daniel 7 is a broad scope of prophecy, and it gives to us something that we need to pay attention to. The the seventh chapter of Daniel has been called the center point of gravity It's been called, uh, of the whole book, it's been called a summit of Scripture, a high point. John Wolver, who was the longtime president of Dallas Theological Seminary, said this about this chapter we're going to read and study. Daniel 7 is the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. He goes on to say, in it, Daniel traces the course of four great world empires, namely, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, concluding with the world climax of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of His eternal kingdom. You see, you need to understand that this is a chapter of pure future prophecy, predictive prophecy. It records God's incredible and unchanging plan for all of the nations. Now, as we approach this week's text, I hope you've had time to turn to Daniel 7. There's a little background that I need to give you. I've already mentioned that chapter 7 and beyond are a new section. We've moved from history to prophecy. And yet, you're going to see something kind of interesting. The book of Daniel does not flow chronologically. Some of you are wringing your hands and saying, oh, great, pastor, this book is already tough enough to to make sense of, and now you're telling me it doesn't flow in order, it's out of order? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. But I think you'll see this pretty easily. Look at Daniel 7, starting in verse 1. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. Now, wait a minute. In the first year of Belshazzar, I thought we killed that guy off. Do you remember just a few weeks back, he was at a a party, he was in a drunken stupor, and in the middle of that party, the finger of God wrote a message on the wall for him, and he sobered up very quickly, and in the midst of that whole episode, uh, those of you that were with us, if you weren't, you can read this in Daniel 5, but God wrote a message on the wall and said that his days were over as the leader of Babylon. And while that party was going on, the Medo-Persians were sneaking under the wall of the city of Babylon, Babylon and the end of chapter 5 ends it concludes with Belshazzar's death so you say well why are we back there you see 7 through 12 very simply can be laid on top of 1 through 6 all the chronology happened but during this time Daniel is going to have four visions in chapter 7 8 9 and 10 let me show them to you very quickly in chapter 7 in the very first year of Belshazzar's reign we just read that he has a vision In chapter eight, in the third year of Belshazzar. In chapter nine, it's gonna say in the first year of Darius, Daniel had a vision. And then in chapter 10, you're gonna see in the third year of Cyrus, Daniel had another vision. So I want you to see very simply, we could lay chapters seven through 12 on top of chapters one through six, and it comes together, it makes sense. Daniel had these four visions over a period of about 22 years, and so these visions that happened later or excuse me or they're recorded later happened earlier now I want to give you one more thought really really quickly as background I've said that one through six is history seven through twelve is prophecy but I want you to think of seven as a bridge because one through seven actually gives the destiny of the nations And 8 through 12 gives the destiny of the nation of Israel. So 7 is a new section. Yes, it's prophetic, but this is fascinating. Uh, The the book of Daniel was written in Aramaic. It was written in in the Babylonian language in the earlier chapters. After 7, we go back to Hebrew because Daniel's now addressing the people of God. One more thing you need to see, Daniel chapter 2 that we studied some weeks ago and Daniel 7 go together. It's the same dream. You're going to see in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 different perspectives. Daniel 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Daniel 7 is God's perspective of the nations. They go together. Let me say it this way. Daniel chapter 2 is a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar, and it is interpreted by Daniel. Daniel 7 is a dream given to Daniel and interpreted by an angel of God. In chapter 2, there was this giant inanimate beast. Do you remember it was a statue, a colossal statue? And in that, there was a picture of the message. In Daniel 7, there are not just an inanimate beast, but live beasts, real beasts that rise up out of the sea. Daniel 2, there are 10 toes at the bottom of the statue Daniel 7 there are 10 horns on the head of the last beast and so you start seeing similarities Daniel 2 is shows history from a pagan king's perspective you see Nebuchadnezzar if you remember this right after he had that dream he had a statue of gold made from head to toe help me out if you can if you remember what was the head of gold on that statue it was Babylon itself and then the arms were made of silver and what represented or what what nation was represented there the Medo-Persians and then there was a brass belly do you remember what that was it was Greece and then there were the legs of iron what was that it was Rome so Babylon Medo-Persia Greece and Rome We're going to see in these four beasts an exact correlation. And you're going to see some remarkable things. Perhaps you've never studied this before. Maybe you've shied away from it. But we've already seen the character of these four nations. Man thinks that that it's just going to continue and we're rising to higher levels. And God simply sees it this way. God says, when I look at the nations of this world, they're nothing more than wild animals. In fact, I read one commentator said it this way, government without God is nothing more than a bunch of wild, ravenous beasts. I figured I'd get an amen out of that one. Government without God is described as wild, ravenous beasts. You see, this text is gonna reveal to us what God thinks about the nations. A bunch of ravenous, carnivorous beasts devouring each other. And the moral character was seen at that party of Belshazzar. And the spiritual condition was seen in the king who would demand everybody worship him. So these two visions are to be interpreted the same way. The four kingdoms or dynasties represented by the four parts of the statue are represented by these four beasts. So today we're going to look at the very first one of these visions. The last chapter ended with Daniel safely delivered from the lion's den. And now the narrative goes back in time. The first thing I want you to see is this. Write it down in your notes. There's a remarkable dream with a pointed lesson. A remarkable dream with a pointed lesson. Daniel says here that he sees three things. A great sea, four winds, and four beasts. Look at verse 2 with me. In my vision that night... I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. And then four beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. A great sea. Most talk about this being the Mediterranean. Obviously, the Mediterranean Sea is the epicenter of biblical prophecy. So much happens there along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The Bible talks about several seas, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, the Galilean Sea. But the Mediterranean is most often spoke of. I think there's more to it than this, though. How many of you have ever been to a football game or you've been to a parade somewhere and you were in the midst of that crowd and you said, I've never seen such a sea of humanity? Some of you filled it in. Have you ever seen that picture? Well, the Bible over and over again describes the multitudes of people like a sea. If you've been to a concert and just seen a wave of people, it looks like waters. And here, in fact, I only give you three different places. Revelation 17, Isaiah 57, and Isaiah 17. We don't have time this morning to walk through these, but scribble them down. It's just a picture of a multitude of people seeing a vast sea. And as God sees this picture uh, or shows Daniel this picture, he sees what I would say is probably more likely and and better understood very simply as a mass of people representing the whole world. And then he says that he sees winds blowing from every direction. Your translation may say four winds. And the number four often represents the world, the four corners of the earth, the four points on a compass, north and south and east and west. Four seasons, what it's saying is that, that from every direction possible, the wind is churning up all of the people. There is uprising. There is bloodshed. There is war. There is tempest, if you will. In fact, Jeremiah 32 says something very, very powerful. Jeremiah 25, excuse me. It says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look, disaster will fall upon nation after nation. A great whirlwind of fury is rising from the most distant corners of the earth. A gigantic sea filled with turmoil. So there's this picture of chaos. Daniel has a dream. And there's a mass sea that really represents all of the peoples. And there's wind that's stirring it up. And out of that comes four beasts. Now, I've already told you that these beasts represent kingdoms or leaders. That's not new to us. Think about it there are still today animals that represent nations. If I were to point out a lion, you would say Great Britain is represented by a lion. If I said that you saw a majestic golden, uh, excuse me, a majestic bald eagle, what nation would that represent? The United States. So this isn't new. In fact, In the Bible, Ezekiel talked about the dragon of the Nile, talking about Pharaoh. He talked about the young lion, Pharaoh. So animals have been used to represent kingdoms. So these four beasts are kingdoms in history. Let's look at verse 4, 5, and 6. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was left standing with its Two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. And then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. And then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Some of you are saying, I have no clue where this sermon is going. We're talking about lions and bears and leopards, oh my. A lion with wings, a bear with ribs, a leopard with four wings. What in the world does all of that mean? Well, again, if you go back to chapter two, that dream of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, you begin to see that these beasts fit that interpretation. Now, as we think about this, Would you just dare to take a guess? What was the the national symbol of Babylon? Any guess? What was the first beast? A lion. If you were to go back through the annals of history, you can find pictures of paintings of winged lions on the gates of Babylon. You can find depictions of what they held true. Their coins often had a winged lion. This was a picture that is so powerful. You may doubt a winged lion representing Babylon, but the people that heard Daniel speak this did not. They understood that's Babylon, and they understood very clearly that it had the majesty of a lion and the strength and power of an eagle. Let me say this to you before we really begin. We're, we're going to turn the corner and make lots of application. You need to hear this. God does not give us general prophecy that might or might not fit something. This morning, we ought to be overwhelmed by the accuracy and detail of God's predictive declarations. When Daniel began to speak this, he speaks of the turmoil of all of the world and rising up out of it was one that would be strong and it was Babylon. This lion with wings. Look at verse four with me again, the second part of it. As I watched... Its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. Do you remember the story? God had warned Nebuchadnezzar, but because of his pride, he would not repent. And he strutted around the city and he said, is this not Babylon that I have created? And in that moment, God struck him insane. He went crazy. If you remember the story, for seven years, it said he fell down onto all fours and his nails grew long and his hair grew long and he literally ate grass like a cow out in the field. And the Bible says there in Daniel chapter 3 and 4 as we move forward through it, that he came to a place of coming to his senses and he stood up on his feet and he gave honor and glory to God. So here when Daniel has this vision, we're seeing the eagle's wings were plucked off and then he was falling down. But he came back and God gave to him a sound mind. You see, I just want you to see that this picture is not unclear. God's not giving some horoscope that you might could fit something into. God is giving a clear picture of the nations. Look at verse 5. Then I saw a second beast, it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and I heard a voice saying to it, "Get up, devour the flesh of many people." There's a sequence to this, one after another. And the sequence is clear. The second beast is a bear. What was the second great empire to rise up? Medo-Persia, a chest of arms and silver. Now, I want you to see this. This isn't just a history lesson. We're coming somewhere to this. There are at least 14 different references in the Bible to bears. Bears the West, I was fascinated finding that I found all of them. I just couldn't help myself. Just kind of ran down that rabbit trail this week. In my study, I felt like a zoologist. I'm just looking for bears all the way through my Bible. My favorite one was where a prophet called down a bear out of the mountains and it came and it ate a bunch of kids that were calling him bald. <laughs> Amen. Look it up. It's in there. We'll talk about that one later. They were making fun of his bald head and his message. He called a bear down out of the woods and it came and ate him up. Nevertheless, this is a bear, a picture of a bear. And the picture is uh, of this bear that is up on one side. I'm fascinated by this. Every time bears are mentioned in the Bible, they're vicious. They have an insatiable appetite, they are uh, carnivorous, they're continually unsatisfied in their appetite. And God allowed the Medo Persians to subjugate many, many nations with the greedy nature of a bear in his dream there were three ribs and if we were to study history you know that the Medo-Persians were able to conquer Lydia Babylon and Egypt and it's almost like these three former uh these were these were the last kill from the last hunt and yet he's still just chewing on their bones because he's looking for more He's looking for another meal. They were victims of his previous hunt. And look at the miraculous detail. Look at verse 5. It says, it was rearing up on one side. I get a picture of a bear at the circus. Have you ever seen one? And it takes its back leg and its front paw and it puts them both up on one side. Well, what is this nation that we've said it represents? Medo-Persia. But you know what? We don't hear of the Medes for very long. The Persians almost immediately took over everything. And the Bible says in chapter 2 that it was two arms. It was a, a picture of the Medes and the Persians. But the Persians took over. And here's a a very simple point again. God's detail ought to drive us to a place of worship. The accurate detail of the prophetic word of God. Here Daniel is laying down the prophecy and history shows the prophetic and powerful accuracy. If God so accurately predicted all of these things that we can check out historically... It ought to give us incredible confidence that we can trust and believe that God's word yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. Let's look at the third. It was a leopard. The lion devours, the bear crushes, but the leopard springs on its prey. This was none other than Greece under Alexander the great. Look at verse 6. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to the beast. Everybody say that with me on that last line. Great authority was given to this beast. Say it again. Great authority was given to this beast that's going to be important in just a moment but what do we know about a leopard what is the probably the single most identifiable characteristic of a leopard they're fast They're fast. And this leopard had four wings on its back. It's like lightning. And Alexander swooped in, and he took over the known world instantly. In fact, I'm sort of a student of military operation and warfare, and it said that the operation known as Blitzkrieg that Germany used came from ancient Greece. That they would attack swiftly, and they would attack so strongly that it overwhelmed with shock and awe. And that's the picture here. There was a leopard that had... Uh, four wings on its back. It's the, the these amazing picture of Alexander that conquered the ancient world, literally from Macedonia to Africa and even farther on into India. He took over the known world. And the lightning nature of his conquest have been unrivaled throughout the rest of history. You say, yeah, but pastor, why does it have four heads? Well, guess what? Alexander was 32 when he died he was 22 when he conquered the whole world you remember the story perhaps you've read it he sat down and he cried because there were no other places for him to conquest at 32 he died probably an alcoholic he could rule and conquer everything but himself and when he died he didn't have any plans of dying at 32 he had plans of ruling for a long time but when he died his kingdom was divided among four generals Ptolemy Seleucus Cassander, Lysimachus. And the Bible says here that his kingdom was split up and there were four heads on this leopard. And the text says something that you're familiar with because you've said it three or four times. And great authority was given to this beast. Let me lay down a principle everyone here needs to hear. If you don't hear anything else that I've said in the last nine weeks or in the rest of this series or certainly this sermon, you need to hear this. The key to the book of Daniel, the key to the book of Daniel is to understand that it teaches us of the sovereignty of God. God is reigning and ruling on his throne in September of 2020. God is not wringing His hands in heaven over COVID. He's not wringing His hands in the world over a political election. He is not wringing His hands over America or over any other place in the world. God is sovereignly on His throne. Let me say it this way. God is in control. Do you really believe that? Is it true in your household Who's running your house? Is God in control? If you're anxious and fretting and worried, then maybe that's not true. But that one statement ought to mark every believer's life. That we say, it doesn't matter what comes. God's got the whole thing in His hand. God is in control. When we read history, and again, I know some of you kind of begin to nod off as we talk about Babylonians and Medes and Persians. But when Alexander went after the Persians, he took 35,000 men with him. And the Persians had almost 300,000 men. How did he do that? Military strategy? Brawn? Surprise? No. You've already said it. Great authority was given to this beast. You know how Alexander conquered the Persians? God let him do it. Do you know how America has become the nation it's become? God's allowed it. Everything in our lives, God either directly causes or He allows because He is sovereignly in control, but He's moving everything in a direction that He desires. It's so important for us to see that. Alexander thought he was great with all of his own achievements, but God made it happen. So these first three beasts represent history. The world powers of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Look at verse 7. And then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. (laughs) It's described as terrible, exceedingly strong, with iron teeth and ten horns there's not another animal that he could even compare it to he doesn't have any reference he just said it was terrible and if you begin to think about the oppression and the cruelty of the beast rome fits the bill in fact it's going to hopefully begin to show us that this is not yet to be fulfilled the empire of the romans filled the world and crushed everything if the world tried to resist resistance was not just futile but it was fatal It was Rome that invented crucifixion. It was Rome that crucified Peter. It was Rome that banished John the Baptist. It was Rome that burned the Christians. It was Rome that literally butchered men and women and children. And it was Rome that crucified our Lord. In chapter 2, we began with a head of gold and we ended up in the mud. (laughs) The devolution, if you will, of mankind. So what will happen in the future, Pastor? Well, we're going to move there next week in detail. I just wanted you to see that God has given to us clear pictures of history that have come true, and we're moving forward. But we're sure of this. There's never been a fifth world empire. We've not talked about the empire of India or China or even of America. And we know that out of those legs of iron came ten toes. Out of those legs of iron came feet of clay and iron. And there was a mixture. And we believe very clearly from this and from the book of Revelation that there'll be a confederacy of nations. Ten nations that will gather. Is it the European Union? I don't know. But that comes out of the Roman Empire. Do you realize that they're already developing coins in Europe and they're already developing everything but a constitution for a European Union? I'm not one to speculate. I think for us to try to speculate on all of the details of all of every symbol is just as foolish as it is to try to affix a date to the second coming of Jesus and if you're here for the charts and the graphs and trying to point everything to fit if you want to know where Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and Barack Obama fit into all of this story I'm not your pastor for that God didn't give us all of that what god did give us though is a clear picture that there's going to be an evil that will rise up and ultimately jesus seated on his throne will bring judgment to the world and he will establish a kingdom and we're coming that way hallelujah is right think of this They are the last development of this beast. There are ten toes on the statue but ten horns on the end. Horns symbolize power or authority and they try to affix it. So I want to reference 9 and 10 and then we're going to wrap this up because we're going to pick them up next week. It's the second point in the sermon. I've preached for this long and had one point. I hope that there's one point to the sermon. God's in control. Number two, a resounding design that points to lordship. A resounding design that points to lordship. You see, if God can tell all the way then, in 555 B.C., all that would happen with the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and all the way to the end when Antichrist arises, God is Lord. What we see in verse 9 and verse 10 is this. I love it. It is a phrase that's only used in the book of Daniel this way it's the ancient of days. It means that He came from nowhere. There is no beginning. He is eternal. And from the beginning, from eternity past to eternity future. Oh, listen, this past Wednesday night, I I love this. Our friend Rick had his kids share with us a string and I was going to do it this morning, but for time's sake I'll just help you imagine it. He stretched out a string and the string was a picture of of time. Time began here and and it ended here. And, And sometime after time begins, Adam and Eve are created. And sometime after that Jesus comes to the earth and then we come to the place where our lives are here and that spin was about this big and I'm looking at that string and saying wow that's not much but eternity didn't start when time started no God is the ancient of days he always has been we sang I am who you say I am well who is saying it the great I am not he is now but wasn't not he will be no I am that I am. God is the great eternal God and God knows all of history and God is in control. And here in verse 9 and verse 10, well, let's just look at those together. I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one, the ancient of days, sat down to do what? To judge. Don't miss it, folks. He didn't sit down to hope that he might have a place among the thrones. No, his throne is high and lifted up above every other throne. He sits down to judge all the others. His clothing was white as snow. His hair was like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend to him. Then the court began its session and the books were opened. Hello. I'm talking about the gavel has been laid down. All rise for the honorable and the judge is seated on the seat of judgment. And Jesus Christ will establish His eternal kingdom, banishing all that is not of righteousness. What power and majesty is there. And again, I want you to see this. This is so vitally important. This timeless sovereign king who is rising up to that place. A timeless sovereign king that is seated on the throne and ready to bring judgment. You need to know this. Here's the question of the day. You ready for it? So what? Pastor, you've talked about seas turning and winds and waves and beasts and horns and wings and eagles and bears. What does all of that have to do with me? Isn't that how we normally, what is is my part of this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because there's real application for us. God would have us to know his perspective from this passage. And clarity brings confidence. And so we have a clear picture that God has laid out history all the way to the end, and that ought to bring confidence for us. But you need to know this. God's perspective is the one that counts. Evolution is not observable in human history. You know that, right? Technology does not negate what I just said. You say, oh, no, we're way smarter than we used to be. Are you kidding me? We got smartphones and dumb people. That's just truth. We started with the head of gold and ended up in the mud. We are on a downward spiral, and God knows that, and God sees that. Babylon might think, oh, we're going to be great forever, but it took two verses, and Babylon was done. You see, man glories in his advances, but God sees history as a chronicle of depravity, immorality, and brutality. Governments may mask their true character before people, but make no mistake, they are unmasked before the sight of God. As human history unfolds, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. Things will get worse before they get better. Well, pastor, thanks a lot. Have a nice day, enjoy lunch, right? I should just walk off. But they will get better. And you and I will not see all of what we're going to understand and know from Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. We're going to begin to see the unfolding and the rise of the Antichrist. And we'll see that God will establish his kingdom. And and regardless of your end times uh, framework, we're going to see that the end result is the same. Things are getting worse. We know that. We can look around us and see. But praise God, hope is alive because Jesus is coming back. It raises that final question, and I I have to address it. My kids and I talked about this. Will we blow ourselves up? Maybe if you grew up in the 50s and you were hiding. I mean, you you were were scared of a nuclear attack. Is annihilation really on the front? Is a pandemic going to wipe out all of mankind? Not if you've read the Bible. Do you remember in chapter 2 what happened to the feet of clay and, and iron? A stone that was cut from the mountain came hurling down the mountain and it crashed into and it brought the whole thing down. And that stone was none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back and he's not coming back to an annihilated world. He's coming back to something. He's coming to bring annihilation through judgment and he will burn up by fire all that's not righteous. He will cast into the lake of fire those that have rejected his kingdom and he will establish his kingdom forever. It's going to get worse. The best is yet to come. But so is the worst. believer. Live wisely. Live accordingly. I want to give you one more statement that you need to know. The course of humanity is determined in the throne room of God. Prophecy is not meant to terrify the believer, but to purify the believer. Let me say that again. The study of prophecy is not meant to terrify the believer. You look at all this apocalyptic language and say, this is scary stuff. It's not meant to terrify us. In fact, in 1 John, beautiful, beautiful picture. 1 John 3, 3, jot that down. It says this, All who have this eager expectation will purify themselves just as He is pure. I close here. People have groaned throughout the ages about what will happen. Isaiah in the Old Testament cried out, And he said, oh, God, would you rend the heavens and come down? God, would you just come back today? Anybody prayed that since March? I have. Lord, Jesus, can we just tap out enough? (laughs) Would you just take us to heaven? Isaiah prayed that 800 years before Jesus came. And John saw in the book of Revelation the answer to Isaiah's prayer and to your prayer. Check this out. You've been crying out, oh, Lord, would you come back? Lord, would you just come back and make all this wrong right? Oh, Lord, would you just bring justice to the injustice? Oh, Lord, would you just make this earth right? And Revelation 19, 11, listen to John's words, and then I saw heaven open up. And a white horse was standing there. And its rider's name was Faithful and True. And he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. We will see heaven open up. We will see Him who is faithful and true. We will see Him coming down. All the world and all the coups and all the rebellions and all the the striving that comes, God is in heaven and is in control and King Jesus will come and make it right. I've given to you seven points of application. I'm not going to go over them this morning. I've said I'm done. But I want you to lay your life Over and against those seven. Because I see so many Christians. Who say that I've got faith and God's going to see me through. And then they fret and they worry.